How did the Bible go from God's lips to my hands? And that's what we're going to tackle this morning. So let me quickly pray for us, and then we'll dive right in for our focus today. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity to come and approach you with confidence. Thank you that you've given to us your word. And I pray this morning that you'd open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see the truth in your word, to understand where it came from, and to know that this was truly a gift given to us by you so that we can be transformed. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity. Holy Spirit, I ask that you move in this place. And Father God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Bible, as we mentioned last week, last week best-selling book of all time in human history, but interesting, interestingly enough, also the most shoplifted book in history. The Bible contains 1,189 chapters and 31,103 verses. Now, what you need to know, if you didn't already, is that um, the, the section headings, the chapters, and the verses are not a part of the original writings. So, so when you open up your Bible and you see um, a big number that indicates a new chapter, and above that is a little section heading, um, that was placed in there after the scriptures were written and put together um, just to help us understand where we're at uh, when we open the Bible and, and to, to be able to find our place when we need to get somewhere. Imagine if, if you did not have a physical address to your home. And let's say I wanted to invite you to my home for dinner. The only way, if I don't have an address and there's no system for you to be able to, to go through to find me, the only way I could direct you to my house is by using landmarks. So I'd have to say, okay, you're going to go north on this road, and I'd have to point to you which road it was, and then I would just have to tell you landmarks. Like, when you get to the really big pine tree, take a right. And, and then when you pass the greenhouse but, but the third greenhouse, not the first two greenhouses you'll come to, the third greenhouse, then you're going to take a left. And so you can imagine how difficult it would be to find your way around if we didn't have addresses, if everything was built off landmarks. And that's why the chapters and the, the section headings and the verses were added to the Bible simply as a reference point to help us find our way to navigate through the Scriptures uh, much quicker. The chapters, in case you're interested... Uh, were, were added in about the year 1228 by a lecture at the University of Paris. And the verses were added um, somewhere around the 1550s. Um, and so those were honestly just put there to help us. Uh, there are roughly 40 authors of the Bible that include kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, fishermen poets, statesmen, and even scholars. The Bible covers history, sermons, songs, law, letters, poems has love letters, geographical surveys, architectural specifications. Good night. I can't talk this morning. Uh, Travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, even legal documents. But what we really want to focus on today is not so much the little details, but really... The, the one great author of it all and how he led it to be put together. You know, if you think about it, communication is vital to our lives. Imagine your life without any form of communication. I mean, wouldn't it be practically impossible? And of course, we immediately can think of just conversations. Conversation you have with your boss, conversation you have with your spouse, your children. But, but expand your mind beyond just face-to-face talking, and think about all the communication that we're surrounded with every day. Phone calls, text messages, emails, Facebook posts, tweets, radio, television, internet, advertising. Communication is everywhere, and that's because it is so vital to our lives. 
And the reason is, is because we were created in the image of God and our God speaks. We serve a God who speaks. And when he speaks, he reveals himself to us. Now, when we talk about revelation, we, we break it down into a couple camps. But in its basic definition, revelation is the process by which God chooses to reveal himself. We serve a God who speaks and is chosen to reveal himself. Revelation is different than speculation. You see, speculation is man's attempt at guessing what God is like. And so categories that would fall into speculation with things like spirituality, religion, philosophy, the social sciences. Now, don't get me wrong. What I'm not saying is that all speculation is bad. Okay, I have a, a, a huge appreciation for the social sciences. Uh, but we, we have to be honest and acknowledge that those those academic endeavors, those categories, are man's attempt to understand if there's a God, and if there is what he is like, what he does, what he wants for us, what is his mind like. Those are all man's attempts at guessing at what God is like. But revelation, revelation is the process where God reveals himself so that we can properly know what he is like and what he wants for our lives. So we break Revelation down into two main categories. I'm going to try to go through these quickly. The first thing that we'll do, and you'll this is kind of a big theologian thing. They love to talk about this kind of stuff and use fancy words. Don't get distracted by any kind of big words today. I just want to help you understand um, how we go about the study of knowing God and, and knowing what he is like. And so the first category is what we call general revelation. General revelation. And this is why we call it general revelation. Because it's very general in who it is available to and in what it reveals. And so general revelation is available to all people of all time, of all cultures, of all languages, all the way around the world. General revelation is general in who it is available to, but it's also general in what it reveals. And I want us to take a look at a few key scripture passages this morning to help us understand what we mean when we, when we talk about this. So the first one I want you to do is I want you to open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to start in verse 18. If you've got your Bible, take that open. If you've got your... your uh, your pad, your tablet, your phone, pull it out, open up your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to follow along, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you're going to open up to Romans chapter 1 with us, turn to page 804 and that Bible and the scriptures will also be on the screen. So let me begin reading. And this is for general revelation. This is, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from all heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? For what can be known about God, that's the key phrase, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So this form of general revelation we would categorize as creation. Through creation, we can get a general understanding of God. It's available to all people of all cultures, of all time, all the way around the world. Everybody is exposed to creation. And through creation, we can gather some minor details about God. One, that He exists, but also that He is powerful and beautiful and creative. So it's... But it's general because what it doesn't do is it doesn't give us specifics like, what's God's name? It doesn't tell us that Jesus died on a cross for us. It doesn't tell us how to be reconciled to this powerful, powerful, beautiful, creative God. So it's general in who it's available to and general in what it reveals. Let's look at another one, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. That's on page 790 if you're using one of our Bibles. Starting in verse 17, 
This is what it says. Yet he, talking about God, did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this form of general revelation we would call providence. That God didn't just create this world and then step back and take his hands off. We can see God through creation, but another way that we see a little bit, a glimpse of God is through his providence. The fact that he has continued to be involved in the process of our planet. That, that he continues to bless us as we live life on this earth. And so through God's providence, we start to get another picture of what God is like, but it's still general in what it reveals. And then here's the last one, Romans chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Romans 2, 14 and 15, page 805, if you're using one of our Bibles. Starting in verse 14, this is what Paul says in Romans 2. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now I'm going to keep reading, but don't get distracted by this term Gentile and all these references to the law. We'll talk about it in just a second. Let me finish. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so here we see another form of general revelation and what we would call a conscience or you could say a moral compass. So all of us have this moral compass that was placed inside of us as part of being made in the image of God that helps us to know that there's more to life than just what we can see and touch and taste. Because all of us have uh, this inward understanding that there are some things that are just inherently right and there are some things that are just inherently wrong. Like what's taken place at the mall in Kenya this past week. You don't have to be a Christian or a a Christ follower. You don't have to even believe in God to be able to look at what's taken place in that massacre and go, that is wrong. Even if you can't explain why, even if you can't put a full philosophical argument to it, we all have this inward compass, this moral compass that leads us to see that there are good and bad, that there is right and there is wrong. And this is another form of general revelation to us to know that if there's a standard, that standard must come from outside of us. It's not man-made because we can all look at things and identify right and wrong. Now, there'll be some things we disagree on, but we can all look at certain events and categorize them as evil and wrong without having to have a law to tell us so, without having to have a philosophical argument to convince us so, because we've been given a moral compass, and that's general revelation. Another category, the second category, is what we call special revelation. And, and here's what it defines special revelation. It's either special or specific in whom it is revealed to, and very specific in information. And so general, we had this, it's available to everyone, and it's general in what it reveals about God. But specific or special revelation is not available to everyone. It is only available to certain individuals or certain groups of people or people who live at a certain time uh, during, during history. And it's only specific to that group, but it's also very specific in the information that it reveals about God. Think about You know, we spent, what, 10 weeks talking about the miracles of Jesus? Witnessing a miracle would be a special revelation. It gives you very specific information about God. And and that special revelation extends to not only the people who witnessed it, but anybody who reads the account of it. So for us, a, a miracle is still a special revelation for us. And so you can see, not everyone got to witness a miracle. People who died before Jesus ever came, not only did they not get to see it, but they didn't get to hear about it. And so it wasn't available to all people of all time, but it was very specific in who it was available to and in what it reveals. And there's two scriptures that I want us to look at when it comes to special revelation. And the first one is in Hebrews chapter 1. 
We're going to look at the first two verses in Hebrews chapter 1. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is a special revelation. Because it's through Jesus that we understand more than we ever could without very specific information about God. We understand God's plan for us about how to be reconciled to Him. We understand His love. And even more specifically, we, we have a, a, a name to attach to God's love. The fact that God the Son left heaven to come to this earth to die for us, what that reveals to us is almost hard to put into words. But we have to acknowledge that Jesus is a special revelation because he has not been available to all people of all times all the way around the world. Now, before Jesus came in the Old Testament, you still were reconciled to God by faith. We see over and over instances where men and women in the Old Testament obeyed God in faith, trusting in what he wanted to do. Old Testament followers, God's people in the Old Testament, they were made right with God because of their faith in him. They couldn't put a name to that faith. They they couldn't say, I trust in Jesus as their source of, an object of their faith, but they understood that one day God would send Jesus. God would send the Messiah. And so they couldn't attach the name Jesus, but they understood part of God's heart and plan. And that brings us, and the way they could know that, brings us to our second point, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. This is our, our second scripture under special revelation, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. And this really launches us into why we've been talking about general and special revelation today and why that matters for us. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God's Word is a special revelation. In it, we find very special, specific information about God. And the Bible is one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself. The Bible is not speculation. It is not man's attempt to understand who God is and what he's like and what he wants for us. It is God's revelation. He is the author of all of it. As he reveals himself, as this scripture says, as he breathed out the scriptures for us. The Bible is our special revelation and is our greatest source for knowing God, for knowing what he is like, and for knowing what he wants for us. So let's get to the big question of the day. The question that many of us have asked, many of us have wrestled with, many of us may have even researched And tried to find an answer to. And today we're going to seek to answer the question. So where did the Bible come from? I mean it's one thing to say. We were created in the image of God. And our God speaks. It's it's one thing to say God speaks. And reveals himself. But that men would write down. What he speaks. Can you. I mean can you even do that? Like is that even a legitimate thing to do? Are you allowed to write down God's word? And then still call it God's word? Well, we wrestled with some of those questions last week about can the written word still be considered God's word? And without question, our answer was yes. But how did it get to be written down? Like, how did it go through that process? And how did it end up in my hands? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. 
just a reminder, these, these scriptures will continue to be up on the screen for you. And if you've got one of our Bibles, if, uh, if you've never turned to Exodus, maybe you don't know where Exodus is, go to page 62. 62 in one of our Bibles. This is taking place at about 1500 BC, just to give you a framework. And this is where the process of God's word being written down begins. Now I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, shouldn't we be going back to Genesis? Shouldn't we go to the first verse of the first chapter of the first book if we really want to talk about when God's word started being written? But as we walk through this, you'll see and it'll make more sense to you. So let me read in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And he, talking about God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is when the written word begins. This is when the written word begins. This isn't when God began to speak, but this is when it began its first process of being written down. And the process was initiated by God himself. The, the testimony or tablets of stone that are referenced here are referring to the Ten Commandments. And that begins the process of God's revelation of himself going into written form. As we see. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 That's where we're going to start. Let's start in verses 24. And it says this, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So here's the next step in the process. You see, God initiated the process by writing out the Ten Commandments on stone. The Israelites, God's people, were then commanded to take those tablets wherever they went in the Ark of the Covenant. And now Moses has just written out more of God's revelation of himself. And what's referenced here, and we talked about this uh, a little bit last week, um, where it says the book of the law, law is in a capital L, which means that it's referencing the first five books of the Old Testament. Remember we talked about that last week? How when you see law, little l, it's just referring to the Old Testament system in general. When you see a capital L, it's referring very specifically to those first five books. And here we see Moses, who's authored those first five books, who has described for us what God has revealed to himself over the years as he's been moving in and through this new nation. Talking about where they came from. Talking about how they got their start. And giving them instructions for living. Moses is writing it down. And here he commands them, take this book of the law. Take these first five books. They would have been the only five books at that point, And put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And so right now, all all of a sudden, you see that these five books have been elevated to the same position as the Ten Commandments. Moses wrote them, but God was still the author. And so they put those books right next to the ones that God wrote himself, those Ten Commandments. And so now we see Scripture starting to be formed. Now we see how the process has moved forward. Um. Just to review a little bit, uh, these first five books, we mentioned that capital L, law, references these first five books. The lowercase l does not, just means it's referencing the Old Testament system in general. It's also called the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, so the first five. And also, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the Torah. So you may have heard that in pop culture or maybe even in reading, but you'll, have, you'll, you'll hear something reference the Torah. And the Torah also are, is referencing these same first five books. But here's something a little interesting. If you have these first five books, but they're all each on their own scroll, then it's just uh, the book of the law or the law of Moses or the law, capital L, or, or it could be called the Pentateuch. But it would never be called the Torah. The only way it can be called the Torah is if all five books 
are on the same scroll. One continuous scroll, all five books on it together. That's the only, only way it's allowed to be called the Torah. If it were done, it would, and when it was done, it would be about 150 feet long if you unrolled the entire scroll. And because it was made on parchment, which is prepared from animal skins, it would literally take an entire herd of sheep to make that much parchment for the entire scroll, to do 150 feet. So that's the only way it'll be called the Torah is if they're all five on the same scroll. You know, it's interesting too, when you read about um, the process of putting these on scrolls, obviously there would have been an original and then copies made. And so uh, there were scribes who that was their profession. It was their job to copy the scrolls um, for God's word to be uh, distributed. And, and to preserve copies because obviously these things won't last forever. And scribes had a lot of very specific rules. They took their job very seriously. You can imagine, you've seen old movies, um, which aren't always accurate. But you know that in old ancient movies or movies that depict ancient times, if a king walks into the room, what do you do? Immediately, no matter what you're doing, you stop, you stand up to honor the presence of the king, and then you bow. Right? Well, for scribes, they took their job so seriously, and, and not just them, but everyone honored scribes and their job because it was so important, that if you were in the process of writing God's name and the king walked into the door, you would not stand up or bow to honor the king until you had finished writing God's name because God took the priority. You know, they were very serious about the accuracy of their copies. Uh, literally, in these scribal schools... They would count every Hebrew letter if they were copying one book or the entire Torah. They would know exactly how many letters there were in a given book. After they had finished making their copies, they would go back and count every letter. And if you were off by even one letter, they took the scroll out and burned it. And you had to start again. And I don't mean just start writing again. I mean, you got to go find another flock of sheep. So that you can make the parchment again so that you can write it out. Another thing they would do is they would not only count the total number of letters. Of course, they didn't have to do it every time. I mean, once you're a professional, you just know, okay, in the book of Genesis, there should be this many letters. They would also know exactly what Hebrew letter was in the middle. So if you, count, if you started on each end and started counting, whatever letter landed right smack in the middle, they knew which letter that was. And so not only would they count the letters, but to make sure that they were in the right order, they would go and they would find the middle letter. And if those didn't match up, if the letter that was in the middle of your scroll that you had just copied was not the letter that was supposed to be in the middle, again, they'd take it out and they'd burn it. And you had to start over again. So let's keep moving on. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to see the next step of progression as God's word is being written down. Joshua 24, verse 26. And it says this, Joshua and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Now that's a really short sentence, super simple. Why do we read that? Well, here's what you need to know. Joshua is Moses' protege. When Moses dies... Joshua steps up and is anointed to be the new leader of God's people. And so now we see, not only did Moses, who was the one receiving the Ten Commandments that God wrote himself, go about the process of writing God's Word, now he has passed on that job to the next leader. And we see Joshua pick it up. And again, you see Joshua writing Scripture and placing it with the book of the law of God. So now you've got Joshua doing the same thing and elevating his writing, that he is writing the very words of God, so he puts it with the other words of God. And one more I want to read for you in Jeremiah 30. Now, these, <clears throat> these four or five verses, what we've read, have just been a very quick survey. Um, there are a lot of instances in Scripture they talk about this process. Um, the books of First and Second Chronicles um, detail a lot of this. Um, but I just want to do a quick survey so you can kind of see the progression that's going on. But there's a lot more instances in the Old Testament. And here's what Jeremiah 30, starting in verse 1, says. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. So now it's not just men going about the process of writing God's words. Now we have God actually giving men instructions 
to do this. So it's not just that a couple guys went rogue and started doing their own thing that God didn't really want them to do. We have God himself telling these men, write down my words so that they can be shared, so they can be documented. So we see the progression specifically in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi that was written probably about the year 435 B.C. And as Malachi finishes his writing, the last few chapters of Malachi look forward to a future hope. That's how he ends his book, and that's how the Old Testament ends. Looking at a future hope. When are we finally going to see this Savior, this Messiah, God's anointed one come to bring about this kingdom that God has been promising for so long. And we're going to talk about how all, all of these things fit in together to the great big story of the Bible next week. But Malachi ends in about 435 B.C. So from 1500 to 435 B.C., God's Old Test, the Old Testament part of God's Word is being written. Now for a long time, the best copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew that we had was something called the Masoretic Text. And it dates to about 9th century A.D. So do you see the time gap? The time gap between when it was finished, all right? So mid to, it could be mid to late 400s. And then nine, that's B.C., 980. You see that 1,500-year time gap between when it was finished and the earliest copy we had in Hebrew. And it was called the Masoretic Text. But then something happened in 1947. 1946 and 7. You see, in the Middle East, there was a little shepherd boy tending his flock and doing exactly what little boys do, throwing rocks. And he was out throwing rocks and he throws one into a cave and hears something shatter, not what he expected. So he climbs up, climbs into this cave, and what he discovers was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries, um, maybe in history, but certainly in uh, in in the 20th century. And he discovered what turns out to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they were is they were preserved scrolls of ancient literature that were placed throughout, uh, it was, I believe it was 14 different caves. It may have been 11, 11 or 14 different caves that contained these clay jars that were perfectly sealed with these parchment scrolls inside of them. Now, not all of them were copies of the Old Testament, but most of them were. As a matter of fact, you can go to Colorado Springs right now and see copies or see, see copies and even literal physical um, documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there's an exhibit. There's always exhibits traveling around the country. There's one of them in Colorado Springs right now that you can go down there and see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls for yourself. And um, biblical critics got really excited because now they could prove something to us. That we had this 1500 year time gap between when the Old Testament was finished and our earliest copy. And there were all these accusations that things have changed. People have changed it. It's been morphed. People have used the Old Testament for their own advantage. And they've changed the meaning of certain texts. They've probably omitted things that should have been in there. They've probably added things that shouldn't be in there. And so this was the biblical critic's big opportunity to say, see, we told you, your Bible can't be trusted. It's been changed. But what it turned out to be was the Dead Sea Scrolls became one of the biggest defenders of what we've been claiming all along, that this is God's word, and that he's preserved it. Because what the Dead Sea Scrolls proved to us, all of a sudden you had this 1,500 year time gap slammed shut. Most of these documents that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, date to about the 3rd century B.C. 4th and 3rd century B.C. And so all of a sudden, this 1,500-year time gap, that door was slammed shut. And what we realized is that Masoretic text that we had from about the 9th century A.D., all these Dead Sea Scrolls helped to confirm for us that God has preserved His Word. But it doesn't just apply to the Old Testament either. I've put together this chart for you up on the screen. And uh, just so you know, within the next week or two, this message is being recorded, will be uploaded online, and you can go and download a copy of this, this, uh, this table here 
uh, so that you can look at it and reference it and it can kind of be a springboard for you to move forward and keep studying on your own. And so uh, this is a copy of some very popular, well-known figures and writers in ancient history, um, specifically surrounding the ancient Greek language, which is what our New Testament is written in, written in something called Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It doesn't exist anymore. So take a look at some of these things up here, and I'm going to walk you through just a bit of it. First, you see Homer, not from the Simpsons, (laughs) 8th century poet, all right, 8th century BC poet, Homer. Now, we've all heard of Homer, uh, wrote the, uh, man, the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? Maybe you read them in school, maybe you were supposed to, and you faked your way through it. So here we have Homer's Iliad, dated at about the 8th century BC, and what you'll see is that there's a 400-year time gap between when Homer wrote and our earliest copy. And of the Iliad, we have approximately 1,757 copies of Homer's work here. Now, here's what's interesting. The last few years have been very, very good to Homer. All right, we have, it's, it's kind of hard to even put into words at how significant the findings have been to find more copies of Homer's Iliad. I taught this just a couple years ago, uh, all the same information and had a chart like this. And at that time, just a few years ago, Homer, we had 610 manuscript copies. So you can see how much we've grown in manuscript copies from Homer. But here's what's interesting. First of all, you need to know that those 1,757 do not all date to the 4th century B.C., What that means is we have 1757 copies, at least one of them dates to the 4th century BC. So our earliest of all of them, the earliest one we have, there's a 400 time gap between Homer when he wrote and our earliest copy. And Homer is the standard for ancient manuscript copies. It is the standard for historical documents. And even long before we had 1,757, when we had 610 copies, even just a few years ago, he was still the standard for historical reliability in ancient documents. 400-year time gap with about 1,757. Now look at Plato and his Republic. Plato, I'm sure you've heard of him, certainly. Um, Philosopher, uh, his Republic was written probably around 380 B.C. And I want you to notice this. The time gap between when Plato wrote and our earliest copy, 1,200 years. 1,200 years between when he wrote and our first copy, our earliest copy that we have. And how many number of manuscripts do we have of Plato's Republic? Seven. Aristotle, his poetics. Aristotle was a student to Plato. 340 B.C. is about the time he would have written the Poetics in a 1,400-year time gap with five manuscript copies. Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Caesar wrote these around 50 B.C. 950-year time gap with about 251 manuscript copies. Pliny the Elder, if you're a a fan of history, you'll know his significance there. Um, His son, Pliny the Younger, Kind of weird names, but uh, if you're, again, a fan of history and, and especially in, in ancient antiquity, then you will know those names well, or at least be familiar with them. Pliny the Elder's Natural History, written about 70 AD, a 750-year time gap with 200 copies. So that's not bad. We're getting a little better. So we're going to play a little game. Next, I have Socrates. Just think about the significance Socrates plays in our world today, but has played for... Um, the last 2,500 years. So his life around 400 BC, just a little before Plato, I want you to think in your mind, based on how influential he is, what do you think is the time gap, and I don't have any specific works listed here, so just any work can, can go in that category. What do you think the time gap between when he wrote and our earliest copy is, and how many copies do you think we have, given the fact that he is so influential in our world? Now, you don't have to shout it out or anything. I just want you to think about it. Just what would you guess? What would be your guess if you had to make one about how many copies time gap? 
Well, let's take a look. Those question marks mean this. We don't have anything. We do not have a single written document from Socrates, period. So there is no time gap. There are no copies of manuscripts because we don't have anything. Now, here's what I find interesting. There are no school boards that are crying out that we should get rid of teaching about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle in the schools. I mean, just look. I mean, between all three guys and how influential they've been in our society, between um, the Republic, the Poetics, and then anything from Socrates, we have a grand total of 12 copies. And the best is 1,200 years removed from the original writing. But I don't hear any school boards trying to, to ban them from being taught in the schools. I don't see any, any colleges or universities getting rid of the school of philosophy because we can't trust it. It's not reliable. We don't, how could we ever know that even Socrates lived? How could we ever know what he wrote? Now hear me say this. I'm not advocating for that. Okay? Um, I, I'm not by any means an expert in philosophy, but I have studied it quite a bit, and I can appreciate philosophy. And I am not calling into question whether Socrates ever lived. I'm not even calling into question whether we know what he did, what he taught, um, the things that he developed, the systems of thought he developed. I'm not calling into question Plato's Republic or Aristotle's Poetics. I'm not saying that we should get rid of them. I'm just bringing up the point. And nobody's saying that when it comes to philosophy. And here's our last one, the New Testament, written around uh, between, excuse me, 50 and 100 AD. So Homer is the standard at a 400-year time gap with seven, a little over 1,700 documents. He, he was the standard even when it was only 610 documents. So just think for me, what would you say is, is the, would be the facts for the New Testament? Written in 50 to 100 AD, what do you think would be the time gap between when it was written and our earliest copies? And how many copies do you think we have? I want you to think about it for just a minute. Given that Homer's the standard, and was the standard even at 610, well, here's something that they don't teach you in school. There's about a 30-year time gap, so less than one generation. Less than a generation between when they were written and our earliest copies. And we have just shy of 6,000 manuscripts. Now, let me tell you this. This is just in the original language. This is just in Greek. We have over 15,000 ancient translations. Because by the year 500 AD, the Bible was into more than 500 languages. So this is just focused on the original uh, language, Koine Greek. We have just shy of 6,000 documents, manuscripts. But yet it seems that there's always this cry for the Bible's been changed and corrupted. We can't trust it. It's unreliable. How do we ever know what was really said? Jesus probably never said those things. The Apostle Paul never really wrote those things. All of it's manufactured so that somebody can push their agenda, yet we can go back within the same generation that they were written and pull up ancient copies and see that what we hold in our hands today is exactly what God spoke 2,000 years ago. Let me do this. How many of you guys have read the Da Vinci Code? Raise your hand. Oh, come on, you liars. <clears throat> it's okay. It's okay. I read it, and I love the book. You guys are afraid because you think I'm going to trash it, and I'm going to trash anyone who read it. Come on, be honest. You, oh, you guys are afraid. All right, well, I, I know there's a good number of you that read it, but I know more of you did. Uh, I loved the book. Dan Brown is a fantastic writer. When it got really popular when I was in college. I remember going to the bookstore and buying it. And I went home and read the entire book in one sitting. I could not put it down. It was such a well-written book. But here's what you got to know. If you want, let's say you didn't read. Let's say you're one of those liars who didn't raise their hand saying they didn't read it. And you decided you did want to read it. And you went to the bookstore today to go buy it. Where would you find it in the bookstore? Would you find it in the history section? No. Would you find it in the religion section? No. Where would you find it? That's right. In the fiction section because it's a fictitious novel. 
because it's not a historical book. It's not based in real history and it's not a religious book because it's not based in genuine theology or belief. Dan Brown is a fantastic writer because when he writes his story, he incorporates people who really did live in history. He incorporates events that really did happen in history and he paints this picture that's so believable. But here's what it would be like to use Dan Brown as an authority source. You see, I love Sherlock Holmes. That's kind of been my new thing, especially in the summer. I got, got into reading Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is an awesome author. But this is, this, this is what it would be like. Um, just like people try to use arguments out of the Da Vinci Code about the Bible, this is the same thing, all right? Is if I went on national television and went on as a legal expert making a definitive decision about the Trayvon Martin-George Zimmerman case. Now, here's I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, That is not our topic for today. I'm just bringing that instance up because it's so fresh on our minds. And it would be like me going on an MSNBC or CNN and saying, this is what I think. He is guilty or he is innocent based on this thing that Sherlock Holmes once said. Well, Dr. Watson thinks, I mean, isn't that absurd? Nobody would give me any credibility if I try to use a novel about a person who never existed to make a legal case in court or to make a legal decision that I promoted on national television. But here's what happens all the time, and I've seen the programs. Guys will go on to a show like Jon Stewart, and I'm not necessarily a fan of The Daily Show, but uh, I pick up when on these, these people show up on, on these talk shows, and they'll talk about how the Bible can't be trusted, how a group of men took control and put what they wanted in the Scriptures to push their own agenda based on information out of the Da Vinci Code. I have heard it on more than once on more than one major national news network. I've seen it happen on MSNBC. That they'll take the kind of arguments that Dan Brown has created for his novel and use those to push an agenda that Christianity is a joke because our Bible's a joke. So what's the truth? How do I know that a man didn't sit in a room all by himself and put in what in the Bible what he wanted in the Bible? How how do I know? How do I know how all this process process works? Well, we know that the Bible was written between 50 and 100 AD by a number of different authors, but here's something interesting in 95 AD There's a church leader in Rome. We call him Clement of Rome. And Clement writes a letter to the Christians in Corinth. So the same people that Paul was writing to when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And in it, he begins talking about the the, uh, the letters and the documents that have proven themselves to be God's word. Those that have been so useful and so powerful that you cannot deny that they must be God's word, not just the opinion of men. Because like we talked about last week, when you read them, they have the power to expose things about you that you didn't even know about yourself. They have the power to change you from the inside out. And Clement of Rome is giving this testimony as he writes a letter. And in it, he names Matthew, Luke, Romans, Corinthians, Hebrews, 1 Timothy, and 1 Peter as those books that have elevated themselves to that position and that should be used in church services. Now, why is that significant? One, well, those are books that are in our New Testament, but also, Scripture hasn't even been finished. It has, not all of it's been written. Most of it probably didn't get finished until about the year 100. So you have Scripture that hasn't even been finished, and already these documents are raising themselves to a powerful level in early second century so early 100s you have a guy named Tatian now we don't talk about much about Tatian because he turned out to be a heretic but one thing he did do for us is he put something together called the harmony of the four gospels and why that matters is because what we see is almost immediately after the new testament being written 
already there have only been four Gospels that have been elevated to this authoritative position. Now, these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were certainly not the only documents written about Jesus. They were not the only testimonies about Jesus' life and ministry, no doubt. But these four had something supernatural about them. It wasn't just a human-authored book. They had elevated themselves to be divinely authored, and it was evident. And though we don't particularly like Tatian, the fact that he put a harmony of the four Gospels to, together tells us early in the early 100s, early in the second century, there's four and only four. In the late second century, we have a guy named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus uh, writes a letter, and in his letter, he contains the books that we have in our New Testament. And so long before any greedy, power-hungry men could have gotten their hands on it, we already see the New Testament coming together through the work of God. Late 2nd century, we have a guy named Tertullian. Bunch of names. Um, If you're interested in this kind of stuff, I'd encourage you just to write down a quick name and you can uh, do a lot more research and, and see a lot more things than I have time to cover this morning. But Tertullian did something that we now use and is meaningful for us, and he coined the term Old and New Testament, and that's really where those come from, late 2nd century, and where he got that was from Jeremiah 31 that talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and, and the covenant being how we relate to God, and there was an old way to relate to God, but Jesus initiated a new way to relate to God, and so the Old Testament covers the old covenant the new testament covers the new covenant and so he came up with these designations old testament new testament but it does not have any um it's not speaking to the value it's not saying the old testament is old it's ancient outdated we should get rid of it he's not making any kind of declaration on importance or value but just the old testament describes the old covenant and the new testament describes the new covenant and here's a big one this would have been very late third century we have a roman emperor by the name of diocletian and diocletian was an evil evil man he decided that it was his job to rid the world of christians it was his job to rid the world of christians and in order to do that he came out with an edict or a law that said all christian scriptures are to be searched out for and found when they are found they are to be destroyed and anyone possessing them killed now here's a question that i find interesting if the bible didn't exist until oh late you know fourth fifth century by some power hungry men how can diocletian order the destruction of the christian scriptures if there aren't any or how do you order the, destru- the destruction of the Christian scriptures if nobody knows which ones are a scripture? The only way you can have a law that says find the Christian scriptures and destroy them is if people actually know which books are scripture and which are not. If there's actually scripture being used, if there are books and letters that are being called scripture. And so Diocletian did just that. But another man who became emperor after him, who helped to defeat him, was a man named Constantine. Emperor Constantine changed that law, and he did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, but he did make it legal. And under the rule of Constantine, Christianity flourished. And then we get to three year 393 and something called the Third Council of Carthage. Now, here's the only reason I bring this up. It would be, in Dan Brown's opinion, and those who read his work and want to follow that line of thinking that would say, this is when a group of men got together and chose what they wanted to be in the Bible. The problem is, that never happened. What happened was these men at the church council of Carthage ratified the New Testament, which means they made a declaration that said, here is what the New Testament is, as has been proven through the life of Christians and the church and through the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. So they did not choose which books 
would be in the New Testament. What they did is said, here's what books God has chosen. Here's the books that have already put themselves in that place. Here are the books that Christians are already using as Scripture, that the church is using as Scripture. And everything, those that should be in and shouldn't be, have already weeded themselves out. It would be like if a group of pastors got together in Denver and held a conference and then had a news meet, uh, like a news conference or a, a press conference and came out and declared, we have made the official decision that Sunday mornings will be the preferred time of worship for Christian churches in, in Colorado. Now, first of all, we'd all be thinking, who gave you that authority? And second of all, okay, who cares? You didn't make any decision. What you said was, Christians are already mostly meeting on Sunday mornings, and so that has become our preferred worship time. You didn't make it our preferred worship time. You just declared that's what's been done already. And that's exactly what these men did in 393. But we have ample evidence to show that this issue had already been resolved for quite some time. And then we move into the next thousand years that we call the Dark Ages. And at that time, at about 500 AD, the, the Bible had been translated into about 500 languages. But at that time, the Catholic Church, what we would now call the Roman Catholic Church, but just the Catholic Church then, decided they didn't like the fact that people had access to the Bible. They didn't want people to have access because it gave them too much power. And so they decided the Latin version, which is called the Latin Vulgate, was the only authorized version of the Bible that would be allowed. And so they ordered the destruction of every other version, translation of the Bible, and only the Latin was permitted. The problem is nobody spoke Latin or could read Latin anymore unless you were trained by the church to read Latin. And this opened up the door for the church to add things that weren't actually in the Bible and to ignore things that were in it. And it gave them complete control over people's lives. And that's exactly what happened. And then a guy by the name of John Wycliffe comes along that has often affectionately been called the morning star of the Reformation. And John Wycliffe decided that it was important that people have access to God's word, that it not be completely controlled by the church. And John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. It was the first ever English translation of the Bible. But it made a lot of people in power very, very angry. And so they arrested him, and in prison he was killed. But there was a man by the name of John Huss who was his student, and he picked up where Wycliffe left off when he was arrested and began continuing the translation and distribution of this English Bible. But it wasn't long before Huss was arrested as well. This time, rather than letting him die in prison like Whitcliffe, they were going to make an example of Huss. And so they took him to a public place to be burned alive. And you know what they did? They piled Whitcliffe's Bibles at his feet to be, to be the fuel to start the fire to burn him alive. And just before they lit the fire, John Huss cried out, In the next 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reformation cannot be suppressed. And that's exactly what God did. Less than 100 years later came a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was scared of God. He was scared that God was going to judge him for his sin and send him to hell. So he became a monk, hopefully trying to make God happy so he wouldn't punish Martin Luther. But what Martin Luther realized is he got into being a monk and he was just as miserable as before. And he still felt like at any moment God was going to judge him and send him to hell. And as a part of his anguish, one of his professors told him, why don't you search the scriptures to find relief? And that's exactly what happened. While he was pouring himself into the scriptures, Martin Luther found faith and he found freedom and he found life. And what he realized is that the church, because they had complete control over the Bible, was preventing other people from finding that same faith and freedom in life. He decided that he wanted the, cha the church to change. Now, eventually there was a denomination, uh, the Lutherans, that were created. 
um, in following Luther's example. But Luther never wanted to break away from the Catholic Church. He never wanted to start a new denomination. His heart was for reformation. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church to be in a better and more healthier place. And on December, excuse me, October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis on the doors of the Wittenberg Church. Lining out all the atrocities that the church was guilty of and how they needed to fix them. And as a result, he was kicked out of the church. And while in hiding, he translated the Bible into German and really began one of the first mass distributions of a translation of the Bible that people could actually read for themselves. And then there was a man named William Tyndale. He translated the Bible into English. But what makes Tyndale significant is that he utilized the newly created Gutenberg Press, the first printing press. And so rather than having to hand copy all of them, and that was very expensive and took a lot of time, Tyndale had them printed at a much faster rate and began selling and distributing them everywhere. And this angered the king. He tried to stop it, but it was almost impossible because of how fast Tyndale could reproduce Bibles with the printing press. So instead, the king ordered his men to go about buying all the Bibles they could get their hands on. The king thought, well, if I buy them all, then nobody will have it. I'll have them all. But Tyndale, being a great businessman, took the profits that he made from the king's men buying all these Bibles and used it to increase production and distribute the Bible everywhere. He was eventually arrested and just before being executed, Tyndale cries out a prayer that says, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And in less than a decade, God answered that prayer. And the king was not only allowing the printing of the Bible, but began to help fund the printing and distribution of the Bible. Many men and women have given their lives so that we could hold God's Word, so that we could have access to it ourselves. This has a long, bloody history because so many men and women understood the power and the value of God's Word and how critical it is for us to have it for our personal daily lives. I want to read something to you as we close. In Galatians chapter 3, and if you will, just close your eyes. I'm going to read this and say one or two words about it and then we'll pray to finish. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit of works? Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain... Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness? Paul's writing to a group of Christians and he's saying, how can you be so blind? You saw Jesus with your own eyes. You saw Him crucified. You saw Him raised from the dead. You were brought into God's family. You found hope and resolution. You found life by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And now you're going to let somebody bewitch you? You're going to let somebody pull you away from that and start convincing you that you have to approach God in some other way? How can you be so foolish? You saw it with your own eyes. I think for many of us in here, Maybe Paul could say the same thing when it comes to the Bible. Most of us don't read or engage in the Bible because we didn't know all of the manuscript details. Oh, because we didn't know all the history. Because we didn't know all the archaeology and, and all the support from history. 
most of us, our problem with the Bible is not that we didn't have the right facts. It's a heart issue. Now certainly some of us wrestle with these questions. And we're going to wrestle with them in here together. And we're going to seek the answers. But for many of us, the reason we don't read the Bible, the reason we don't engage it, the reason we don't allow it to speak into our lives every day is because because our hearts have grown cold. We've been bewitched. We've been led astray. And my prayer for us this morning is that we understand that for the last 2,000 years, the last 3,000 years, the last 3,500 years, so many people have given their lives to preserve and protect God's Word so that we could hold it in our hands. And then we let it collect dust on a shelf because we think it's just an old book. And I pray for all of us today that we would examine our hearts and how we approach the Bible. That maybe we could take a lesson learned from so many of these individuals who gave up so much, who valued the Bible so highly, that we may think and examine our own selves and about where we stand with the Bible and how much we value and treasure it. And my prayer is that we would come to a place that we not only believe it's the very Word of God, but that we trust that it's reliable. And that what God spoke in the beginning, God has preserved for us today. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. God, we don't take lightly the history of your word. Thank you for being a God who speaks. Thank you for being a God who reveals himself. For being a God who wants to be known. Who wants us to know you. Who, Father, that would you please open our minds and our hearts to the beauty of your word. But also that we would understand its value. And that we would treasure it above all else in our lives. That we would build the foundation of our lives on this. Because this is our best way to know you. To know what you're like. And to know your plan for us. God, convict us for where we've taken your word for granted. Give us a hunger and a passion for your word. Lord, as we continue to worship this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would... Be present and powerful in this moment. Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.